Well, as Luke already mentioned, today is Reformation Sunday, which means it's the Sunday where we thank God for and remember the men and women who took part in the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of the gospel with clarity and the authority of the word of God. One of my favorite Reformation stories is how John Calvin ended up in Geneva. It's hard to imagine a Protestant Reformation without John Calvin in Geneva, but Turns out it was unlikely that he would end up there at all. Calvin was from France. Right after he had published his first revision of uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he became both famous and infamous and uh, had the Pope after him and had to flee. So he hatched a plan to get off into the countryside to live in a place called Strasbourg. He would live a quiet life of study and writing. Only one thing that had to happen along the way. He had to stay one night and one night only in Geneva, Switzerland. Well, it turned out that one night that a preacher by the name of William Farrell heard that the John Calvin was in town. And he decided that this must mean that God was calling Calvin to stay in Geneva and help him pastor the people there. So he went and found the house where Calvin was staying and he laid out his case of how great the need was for pastoring and how God clearly was calling Calvin to pastor here. And Calvin kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to go to Strasbourg. And so he pled some more with Calvin and Calvin still refused him. And then finally, Pharrell invoked a divine curse on him. This is what he said. May God curse you and your studies if you do not join me here in the work he has called you to. That's one way to offer someone a job, I guess. Strangely enough, that did the trick. Calvin was so frightened by the prospect of divine curse that he decided to stay in Geneva, and you might say the rest is history. Well, I'm certainly glad that John Calvin stayed in Geneva and for the fruit of his ministry and so many of other reformers. But I am even more glad that Jesus, when he gathers disciples, uses a very different approach. You see, Jesus doesn't thunder with curses at us. He warmly invites us and invites, asks us to come and see. Because Jesus knows that really what we need deep down is not to have a prosperous life, not to be comfortable. What we need most of all is Jesus himself. So he can invite us, he can even woo us knowing that we will find our greatest joy as we find our all in him. This morning, we're going to see the calling of Jesus' first two disciples, the first two men to leave their lives behind to follow Jesus. And along the way, we're going to see this warm invitation that's still open to us today. Two invitations, really. In verses 35 through 39, we'll see the invitation to come and see, to find our delight in knowing Jesus. And then in verses 40 through 42, we'll see the invitation to go and bring, to find the joy of bringing others to Jesus and watch him transform them. Let's begin in verses 35 through 39, the invitation for us to come and see. Our passage starts off with day three of the narrative portions of John's gospel. If you remember back to about a month ago now, as we've been studying, the focus has squarely been on John the Baptist. 
On day one, John had the most significant moment in his ministry up to that point. A delegation from Jerusalem showed up and asked him a bunch of questions. John, just who exactly are you? John was faithful in that moment. He, he did not try and take the spotlight or glory for himself. He said, I am not the Christ. I'm just a voice. I'm one who prepares the way to, for the Messiah to come. Then the second day came, the next most significant day in John's ministry, back to back, because that was the day he saw Jesus and he knew this was the day he got to unveil who he was. He declared, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. On that day, he witnessed in front of everyone gathered, probably his disciples, maybe some of the Jews that had just come to hear John preach and be baptized. He testified that Jesus was God's provision for sin. Now we come to day three. In verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Whether they were there the previous days or not, we don't know, but they're here today. In verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this isn't just John running out of material. Just repeating himself because he can't think of anything better to say. This is what John came for. He is here to point people to the fact that Jesus is the one that God's people have been waiting for. As we unpacked a few weeks ago, that phrase, Lamb of God, is just freighted with Old Testament meaning. It, it immediately brings to mind all the sacrifices in the temple. It certainly brings to mind the Passover. It brings to mind the fact that God's people need God to deal with their sin. And up until now, it hasn't been clear how that's going to happen. John, with one last burst of prophetic might, says, Jesus is the guy you've been waiting for. This time, something different happens. Two of his disciples detach from John, and in verse 37, we're told, they start following Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, we'll find out the identities of those disciples in a second, but just think about the significance of this moment for a second. John the Baptist, the prophet that broke the 400 years of silence, the greatest man that had ever lived up to this point, Jesus will say, he sets off a chain reaction that's still going on to this day. He introduced two men to Jesus, and those two men will introduce more and more people that we could possibly count down through the ages until each of us has heard of this Jesus ourselves. It's like John is a booster rocket bringing a payload out of orbit and then once its job is done, he detaches and starts to fade off the scene. From here forward, the camera is going to be squarely on Jesus and this great man of John, he'll fade into the background. John tells us that these two disciples, they follow Jesus. Now, it could be that he's just giving us the facts of the story, that they physically walked in a trailing fashion to catch up with Jesus. It could be. I think as so often is the case in John's gospel, he's writing in layers here. Because to follow Jesus is another shorthand way of saying to become his disciple. 
And the way it's written, I think it's obvious that these men didn't just intend to catch up to Jesus. They intended to walk with him for the rest of their lives, to go wherever he goes, to do whatever he does. These two men are Andrew, and the other one's unnamed. It's very likely the author of John's gospel, John himself. We'll find out more along the way as they continue again and again to, to, uh, to be seen around Jesus, to do ministry with him, to learn from him. But at this moment, they're making the choice to follow him. And that's what discipleship as most basic is. It's following after Jesus. They followed Jesus, and Jesus immediately swings around in verse 38. He asked one of those only Jesus can ask sort of penetrating questions. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? Now, you could take that as Jesus just saying, hey, guys, uh, why are you following me? <laughs> what, what are you doing? Uh, it could be he's saying that, but Jesus has this habit of asking questions that get beneath the surface and get straight to the heart. Jesus, even as he first interacts with these men, is asking them the deepest of all questions. What are you after? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you've ever spent the time to ask yourself the question, what am I really after? Maybe you've just gone from one logical step in front of you to the next, going through one grade after the other in school and then finally to college and then getting a job and getting married or whatever your path of life is. Maybe it's felt like each step was logical along the way. But let me ask you, what are you really after? What's the end game? What happens when you get that job? What happens when you retire from that career? What happens when those kids are launched out of the nest? Are you sure you're going to find a sort of lasting satisfaction that your heart longs for? Someone would come and evaluate Jesus. First thing they need to do is ask themselves, what are you really after? See, we Christians aren't people that think that we are somehow better than other people or we're morally superior. And that's why God accepts us. Now, now we think we're just people that have found the thing that our hearts long for. And we long for other people to have that same joy. You were made, according to the Bible, to know God and be known by him. And according to the Bible, that's only possible if you personally come to know Jesus Christ. Jesus, at the very front end, asked one of those Beneath the surface, heart questions of the disciples. Because at its core, a disciple needs to be someone that knows that Jesus is the most valuable thing in this world. Disciples don't really know how to answer Jesus. This will be another reoccurring theme. <laughs> he asks a great question and they don't have a great answer. So instead, they change the subject. And they said to him, uh, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, where are you staying? Now, that may seem like a total evasion. It's at least a partial one. I don't think it's a total evasion. It was, at the very least, a valid question. Uh, we find out later in verse 39 that it was what's called the 10th hour. Uh, now, the way they kept time, that was a way of saying it's about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. 
And that meant it was time to start wrapping up your work and wrapping up your activities and making sure you knew where you were going to spend your evening. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had something like this happen. There was one horrible, horrible time where uh, my... Uh, where Precious and I and Lillian, uh, who at that point was just a few weeks old, made the really bad mistake of trying to get out of the city of Chicago right in the middle of rush hour. Um, In the Lord's providence, uh, that proved to be the most diapers that needed to be changed in a two-hour block that we've had in our whole lives. And it it happened in gridlock traffic with no way to get off. uh, it, It actually took us almost two and a half hours to get home. Um, so people that live in Chicago and thereabouts, they know there are certain times a day where unless you don't mind waiting around for a while, you better just wait until this storm blows over and just wait for traffic to die down. Certain communities, certain eras, you know how it is and where, how, how it is you can travel safely and when you'll be able to travel easily. In Jesus' day, to travel at night showed you were really in desperate straits. Consider for a second, they did not have streetlights. They didn't have headlights on cars. A lot of times they didn't have paved roads. If they were paved, they're not our standards of pavement. To stumble about in the dark, trying to make your way from point A to point B is an easy way to get yourself lost or hurt, or maybe even worse, to get yourself victimized by bandits or thieves who are up to no good. People in that day knew that when the 10th hour came, when 4 o'clock came around, it was time to start figuring out where you're going to hunker down for the night. So the disciples, likely here, know that they can't walk back to their homes uh, at this point in the day, so they have to find somewhere to stay. So at that level, what they're saying to Jesus is a a pretty practical concern. And yet, look, yet again, (laughs) the way Jesus responds goes beneath the surface, straight to the heart. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. I don't think John just means to tell us, Jesus said, yeah, just follow me and I'll show you the house I'm in. As Jesus will do again and again, he says something far deeper than they understood in the moment. He extends to them an invitation to come find what they really need. To come find the greatest gift this world has to offer, the presence of Jesus himself. They came and they physically stayed in the same place as Jesus. They likely talked all through the night. It was the beginning of a relationship that would last the rest of their lives and that will continue on into eternity. They were spending time with the Savior. They got the joy of meeting Jesus. You know, we don't have Jesus physically present with us in this world. It's not possible for us to go sit in a room and to see that man that walked this earth 2,000 years ago in the flesh. Most of us will not have that experience this side of heaven. And yet, the invitation that Jesus offered to those two disciples on that day is open, warmly open, to each of us this morning. We are invited to come and see, to find the joy of truly knowing Jesus.
for those of you who've been Christians a long time, it's only natural that over time you, you go through seasons where your quiet times, uh, your, your devotion times, however you want to call it, they, they sometimes start to feel like a, a duty that you do, like a, a checklist that you just kind of have to get through. And, and there is something good to being disciplined to making sure you are in the Bible and praying even when your emotions don't lead you there. But see if this doesn't change the way you struggle through that morning 15 or 20 minutes or an hour if you're lucky. See if you don't find a different type of joy. If you think of Jesus as personally inviting you to come and see, to really know him, See, when you're praying, you are talking to Jesus. When you are reading his scriptures, that's the primary way where he talks to you. We have the great privilege of knowing that no matter how our hearts feel in the moment, that Jesus wants us to come, to draw close, to experience the joy of knowing him. Well, it's amazing what happens when you do avail yourself of that joy. When, when you do draw close to Jesus and maybe you press through that season of dryness into a season of plenty and you know for sure that Jesus really is the greatest thing in this world and in those moments, don't you find something happen, brothers and sisters? Don't you find yourself wanting to share that joy with others? Well, that's the second invitation that we see in verses 40 through 42. We're not just invited to come and see, we're invited to go and bring find the joy of sharing Jesus with others. In verse 40, we're told that one of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. In other words, first thing in the morning, Andrew got up and boom, he was out of bed and he went off. It said they found his brother and then he told his brother, we have found the Messiah. You get the sense that he's motivated? Sense his joy, his excitement? Comes and he finds his brother. He says, we have found uh, the Messiah, which translation of that means the Christ, the difference between the Hebrew or Aramaic and the Greek. Both of them are uh, stand-ins for the, the phrase, the anointed one. Um, if you're or well-versed in your Old Testament, you know that the anointed one is either a prophet, a priest, or a king. It was a way of setting apart a man for a special sort of ministry of leadership amongst God's people. So when David, by the prophet Samuel, was set apart to be king of Israel, he was anointed with oil. When the priests were set aside to serve in the tabernacle and the temple, they would be anointed with oil to show that they were consecrated for God's use. When prophets like Elijah started their ministry, they were anointed with oil to show that God's spirit would be upon them, that these would be people that God's people needed to listen to. In that little phrase, Andrew reveals that they have found God's leader. Now, I don't think that Andrew understands fully the disciples show again and again their ignorance as the story unfolds. And yet in this moment, he speaks far better than he knew. Because Jesus isn't just any prophet. He isn't just any priest. He isn't just any king. 
He is the greatest of all of them rolled into one. He is the great leader that God's people have been longing for. The one that will deal with their sin the way a priest would. The one that will reveal God like a prophet. And the one that will finally bring God's rule over all the earth like a king. Andrew didn't speak all the truth about Jesus. He didn't know it. But what he said about Jesus was the truth he knew. And he, his joy was so full that he had to share it. He brings his brother, a man named Simon, who will go on to be known as Peter. In fact, Jesus here renames him in that very moment. It could be that Jesus shows his ability to know things supernaturally by the fact that he knows that his name is Simon in, uh, <clears throat> in verse 42. It could be that Andrew just told him that that he was going to bring his brother. It really doesn't matter. What is significant, though, is that Jesus immediately gives him a new name. We don't think much about names these days. Names are mostly a matter of preference. Maybe there's a family connection to a, a name that you give a child. They have whole books you can get which show you which names are popular during which era. It's kind of fun to see the rise and fall of names through different grades and things for teachers. But back in in these days, your name was a stand-in for your whole person. Your name defined who you were. And for someone to have the authority to rename you is for them to have authority over your life. You can think of God renaming Abram to Abraham. You can think of Jacob being renamed to Israel. That is God showing that a fundamental change has happened in this person's life. And from now on, their life will be defined by God's terms. Jesus renames Simon to Cephas or Peter. Both of them mean rock. One, again, Hebrew, Aramaic, the other in Greek. And in that moment, he speaks the final word on Peter's life. He sets him on a trajectory of transformation that will spell itself out over the remainder of his life. Now, if you know about Peter, he will rise to become probably the most famous of the apostles in his day. He's brash. He's bold. He's like a bull in a china shop, constantly stepping in it and saying things. And he ends up being an incredible witness for Christ. Christ does amazing miracles through this man. His witness before the Jewish community is hard to, hard to quantify. And yet, before he gets there, there are so many potholes along the road. I mean, at one point, he commits the greatest of all betrayals. He denies Jesus three times. And Jesus has to speak another word over him, assuring him of his restoration. Yet at this moment... As surely as the sun would rise the next day at this moment, Peter's life, his trajectory of life, of transformation, was set out before him. Jesus spoke this word over Peter and claimed him. It's amazing what can happen when Jesus lays claim to a life. It's amazing. I hope you were encouraged hearing Jonathan's testimony. It's one of the great things about hearing testimonies. We get to see that Jesus really changes people. Doesn't that produce joy in your heart? Now, before we move on, though, I want to point out 
that there would be no change from Simon to Peter if not for that other disciple, his brother, Andrew. Now, Andrew doesn't have nearly as much fanfare in John's gospel or the rest of the scriptures as Peter. He shows up in lists of disciples. You you see him in a few spots, like the feeding of the 5,000. We don't have recorded any sermons from Andrew. We don't see Andrew boldly standing up and giving an apologetic to Jewish scribes. And yet every time Andrew shows up in John's gospel, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Without Andrew, there would be no Peter. I don't know about you, but I am greatly encouraged by that fact. Very few of us are called to be a Peter. It is an unusual thing when God gifts and puts before someone a very public, very effective sort of ministry like his. And yet, every single one of us are called to be like Andrew, to be faithful, to be full of joy, and to be sharing that joy by bringing others to meet Jesus, just like we have. What would it be like if we had a church full of Andrews? Not the best-spoken church. Not a church with the most seminary degrees or the most people with the gift of evangelism. But a church full of people that love others and love Jesus and as a result can't help but bringing others to meet him themselves. See, if we're really a people that come and see Jesus, that fill ourselves up with his presence, we're going to be a sort of people that go and bring that are faithful in relational evangelism. I think that there is, amongst Christians in the U.S., a a misunderstanding of the moment in which we live, Um, largely because a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons is because we pay more attention to the, the TV and the radio and what they say about the communities we live in than we do talking to actual people. But as I talk with many Christians, many of us are under the assumption that if they were to broach the subject of Jesus and what he's done in their lives with a neighbor or a family member, that they would immediately set off a hostile sort of relational encounter. There was a survey done by a guy named Ed Stetzer in what's called the Transformational Discipleship Assessment. It's a, a tool used to try and help churches to understand how they can reach their neighbors. It has some really, really encouraging statistics in it. One of them is that 78% of our non-Christian neighbors and family members, 78% of them who know almost nothing about church or Christianity, say they would be open to a conversation about faith with a Christian. 78%. It's almost four out of five people say, got nothing to do with church, I know nothing about the Bible, but if a Christian came and wanted to talk with me, but what they believe, I would be open to the conversation. Let me give you a less encouraging statistic. 71% of them say that no one has ever tried to explain to them how it is they become a Christian. 71%. That tells us two things. It tells us first that their opportunity is great, that people are open By and large, people are open to talking about Jesus, to being invited to come and explore about him. It also tells us that, by and large, 
we're not taking advantage of that opportunity nearly at the level that we could. Now, as we talked about last week, immediately our duty and our guilt gears are, are rolling at this moment. And, and, and we need to fight back against that by remembering it is a joy and a delight to go and bring someone to Jesus and to watch their life be transformed. We don't have to do this just because we have to. We, we get to do this. And what a joy it is when it happens. It's not rocket science. It's just relationships. It's just using the people that already know you and trust you, using those relationships God's given you to bring them to a place where they can actually hear the truth of the gospel so their lives can be transformed. I spent a few moments this week trying to think through how many people uh, I've heard testimonies about or I knew personally that came to Jesus because of an Andrew. That is, they didn't turn on the TV and watch Billy Graham or come across a tract and uh, read the Bible on their own. They came to Jesus because someone invited them or someone took the time to explain to them, and that was the way God introduced them to Jesus. This is what I came up with just a few moments. It's a guy named Nabil Qureshi, very powerful apologist, converted out of Islam, recently died. He was converted because his college roommate was a Christian and broached the subject about Jesus and started a long-term evangelistic conversation that one day resulted in him meeting Jesus himself. Ravi Zacharias, he was invited to an evangelistic meeting by his sister. That was how he got introduced to Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Chuck Colson, credible evangelist himself. The way he came to Christ was a business partner, someone he was trying to have a business transaction with, brought up the fact that he was a Christian and shared the gospel with Chuck. That's how he came to Christ. I met a missionary just a few months ago. He was working in a warehouse next to a Christian who used the opportunity of these long periods of silence to talk with him about Jesus. Became a new creation in Christ, is now serving far across the world as a missionary. Man who mentored me, he was invited into the home of a Christian who used hospitality and conversation to share the gospel with him slowly, answer questions little by little until he finally came to Christ. He's been serving as a pastor for decades now. Another friend of mine, he was a, went to, off to college and his college roommate was a Christian, faithful to invite him to church, have conversations afterward or over the course of one semester he came to Christ. Another man, he was a new immigrant that came to the U.S. He met someone from his country. That man was a Christian. He invited him to his house. He invited him to come with him to a Bible study, and that man came to Christ. He's been walking with Christ for years now. My own life, my mother. She had a dear friend that conspired to get her to go to Puerto Rico and live on a farm for two months because she wanted to lay out in front of her the grace of Jesus. She was willing to do whatever it took to be able to go and bring my mother, mother to Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, it is a great joy to know Jesus, isn't it? And if we are availing ourselves of that great joy, we will naturally want to have the continued joy of seeing others come to know him and being transformed as a result. I don't think we need a special evangelistic program. I don't think we need more people with 
masters of divinity or masters in evangelism. We need to be a people that see ourselves as Andrews, as faithful witnesses in the relationships God's give us. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, we will get the joy of watching others transformed the way we've been. Let's pray.